Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. Psalm 5 is an individual lament. It is an early morning psalm. We don't know the context of this psalm in the life of David. We don't have any context. We don't know if it was when he was on the run from Saul or when he was king and he was conquering the Philistines. But what we do know is that this psalm, though ancient, is extremely practical. Why? Because it teaches us about two things that you and I need to learn to do. Groan and watch. Groaning and watching. In verse 1, David says, consider my groaning. The Psalms invite us to groan. The Hebrew word for groan means to take my inmost thoughts and verbally express them in ways that words defy. To take what I muse upon. To take all the things that you have been thinking about all week that you know that you've been thinking about and spending extraordinary amounts of time thinking about it that your spouse may not know, that your roommate may not know, the things that are in the heart of your heart that you have. Maybe it's tension in the world. Maybe it's confusion about some issue. Maybe it's wondering, Lord, where are you? And you groan. And the reason why I'm bringing this out is because Christians are people who groan. We don't repress our emotion, nor do we vent it. But we groan. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, the groaning prophet. And he says in chapter 45, verse 3 in the book of Jeremiah, you said, woe is me for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary from my groaning and I find no rest. Anybody here groaning? Lamentations 1-2, they heard my groaning, Jeremiah writes, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble and they are glad. Jeremiah felt alone, he felt abandoned, he felt siloed, and through his loneliness, he prophesied to Judah, groaning. Or Peter recounts in Acts chapter 7 that when Moses was at the burning bush, Peter says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, the Lord says, who are in Egypt and I have heard their groanings. I have come down to rescue and deliver them. Or in this first century when Paul was writing in the book of Romans to the Christians in Rome, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings. Too deep for words. Christians are groaning people. And if you're here in the room and you're not a Christian... You look at Christians and you wonder, why are they so strange? It's because they're groaning. They feel the tension of being accepted in the sight of God because of the finished work of Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. And yet the world is still full of sin. And so are the Christians. Delivered from the penalty of sin, but we're not delivered from its power. And some of you who aren't believers in the room, some of you actually are more sanctified as the world would define sanctified than the Christians are. You're kinder. You're more generous than even some Christians. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's at work in them in powerful ways. And maybe, just maybe, 
The mark of the church is not that it's more holy, but the mark of the church is actually we are more open, humbled, and honest about our need for repentance. And that power, the power of Jesus' righteousness for us, is what allows us to go and serve the world and sacrifice our life for the sake of others. The church is not comprised of more holy people. The church is comprised of adoration and worship of the only one who is truly holy, the Lord Jesus himself. And if you, as a non-believer, look upon the Christians and say, well, I've got my life figured out. Well, let me just invite you to check your heart because, oh, brother or sister, you do not. And you also need to groan and find that your groaning can only be met by the finished work of Jesus. We think that the good times are just around the corner often, don't we? That a decade from now or two decades from now, our children are going to have lives that are better off than ours are. I'm reading a book right now by Mark Knoll. It's called America's God, and it's the story of the way that America has used the book, the Bible, all the way through her history. And between 1870 and 1910, did you know that we were just a wildly optimistic country? Crazy optimistic. And we knew that every year was going to continue to get better, and it did. For 40 years, things just got better and better and better. And we think today that we have just around the corner, things are going to get better. That our children will be better off, that our investments will go up, that our homes will continue to appreciate. Can you say that? For those who lived from 1870 to 1910, they just found this incredibly powerful time to live where things did indeed get better and better and better almost by every standard. But by the 1940s, they had seen the aftermath of World War I and the Great Depression and the Holocaust. And people were starving to death by the thousands in Western Europe. And during that time in 1940, around the world globally, nobody thought the world was going to get better and better and better. It was the winter of civilization. And decade after decade, they just said, Lord, we groan. And we think that there are some institutions today, today, that we look at and we thought, you know, five, ten years ago, never in a million years would those institutions fall. But some have. Listen, the why I'm pressing in on this because we are people who groan. And we are not promised that each new decade is going to get better and better and better. Dare we say every decade coming ahead of us may actually be getting worse. And you say, great, we picked the wrong church, honey. <laughs> it's not very optimistic first time I'm here and this is really motivating, pastor, good job. But listen, friends, on one hand, we shouldn't like panic. We shouldn't panic because we don't know what the future holds. And on the other hand, we shouldn't stick our heads in the sand and just pretend to numb ourselves that each decade ahead of us is going to get better and better and better. Why? We have to learn the art of groaning as Christians because Christians are, among everything else, we are radically realistic people who are able to look reality in the eye and to say even as reality may seem confusing or may seem up in the air we have a God who is sovereign over every bit of reality who holds the world in the palm of his hand and we are therefore people who groan as we look to our king what does this psalm tell us listen this psalm tells us that though we are groaning verse 3 David shows us the secret to our groaning 
O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Suburban spirituality says that whenever you groan, you just numb yourself. Let's go shop online. Let's go get involved in another activity. Let's just busy ourselves so that we can skip like rocks across the stream all the 70 or 80 years of our life, retire fat and happy and just say, yes, Jesus, thank you for giving me everything I would have ever wanted if I had never been a Christian. But the secret of how you groan well is you watch, verse 3. And the Hebrew word for watch means to wait in expectation. If you have an NIV, you see it. It's brought out by the editors of the NIV. You wait in expectation. No eye has seen or ear has heard. No one has perceived a God like ours who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Or Psalm 33, 20 and 21. We wait and hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice because we trust in your holy name. Waiting is the lost art of Christians who groan. And so how do we watch? How do we wait eagerly? Well, there are four ways that this psalm shows us. We are to watch thoughtfully, practically, perceptive and joyfully thoughtfully practically perceptively with perspective and joyfully look at verses 4 to 6 first thoughtfully for you are not a God who delights in wickedness evil may not dwell with you in the ancient Near East the concept of holiness was separated from any concept of morality in ancient Near Eastern religions. To be holy, most people thought, was to be like their gods. And the gods of the ancient Near East were vengeful, angry, lustful, sometimes capricious gods. And the only difference was that the gods were powerful and lived forever and the people were not. And the ancient people considered, them, considered their gods to be both a source of good and evil. And into that world... The God of Israel comes, Yahweh, and says, no, I am holy and that I am set apart. I am utterly different and I am good. Notice what it says in the text. It says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. David writes that God hates all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful men. When the early church would read this psalm, between the year of 500 BC or so and 500 AD, they read it with the prevailing philosophy that what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good can be perceived by a natural human being. And through their hard work and through their right thinking, they can also be true, beautiful, and good. And for the Romans, it meant worshiping the emperor. And for the Greeks, it meant growing in knowledge. And here, David, as though he knew what it was like to be in that culture, 500 years before it even came to be, he says, God, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That is, God, you are good, truly good. And the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Lord, you are truly beautiful because you define what is beauty. And you destroy those who speak lies. And so David is saying, the Lord is truly the truth. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. 
And so David has beat Plato and Aristotle to the punch to say it is the Lord who is true and who is beautiful and who is good. And one of the ways that you watch is you have to watch thoughtfully. That is, you recognize the character of God as he's revealed in his word. And you think about it and you spend the diamond of his character and you learn, you learn good theology that he teaches in his word. And not only did the ancient people have misconceptions of holiness, but also all of those in Roman and Greek society did as well. And today, people have misconceptions of God. That's an understatement. What is it that you think about the Lord Jesus? What you think, John Owen says, will actually determine how you begin to believe. And what you believe begins to determine how you act. Edwards would spin that around and say, no, your actions and your affections and your mind actually are all in a divine dance together. Sometimes you have to live out your faith before you actually believe it. Sometimes you have to learn it before you actually feel it. Sometimes you have to experience it before you actually learn it. Your affections, your mind, your hands, they all work together, Edwards would say. But we know from Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And here David in this psalm in verses 4 to 6 says, first, how do I watch? I watch thoughtfully. I meditate on who God is and his character. And second, in verses 7 to 8, he says, you watch not just thoughtfully, but watch practically. What do you do? How do you watch? What does it say in the verse? Lower your eyes to verse 7. What does it say that we do? But I, through the abundance of your loyal love, your kessed, your steadfast love, I will enter your house. David goes to church. He goes to worship. David knows that if I'm going to watch thoughtfully, yes, I need practices, I need behaviors, I need habits that shape my mind. And he goes to the tabernacle. It wasn't even a real church. It was kind of like the gymnasium that the Israel set up every week for the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. This was before they even had built the temple. He says, I need to go into the presence of the Lord. And so for moms and dads here, young adults who were so tempted on Sundays to just skip the Sunday worship, let me tell you that what happens in worship shapes your hearts. It reorders your affections. It affects your children in ways that you may not ever know for decades from now. The habit of your heart in coming to worship is not just some legal code to live by. It is something to rejoice in and watch. Because he shapes you in worship. James K.A. Smith writes that worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and remolds us from the top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabilitates our loves, Worship isn't something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God restrains our hearts. Not only does David come to worship, but also he demonstrates humble obedience. 
Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make way your way and make it straight before me. David obeys with his righteousness that is given to him by the God of Israel, not with his own merit. He says, Lord, make me walk in your truth. Comes to worship and humble obedience, covered in the righteousness of Christ. And you can't see the 10,000s of 10,000s of angels that are standing in ovation to clap to say, you've done it. When all your neighbors, many of them, are sitting at the pool right now, you are at worship. Don't ever underestimate the power of that, friends. And keep coming. Keep coming. Those of you who can't make it this week, keep coming. Keep coming. He reorders our loves and he reshapes us as a community as we worship him together. So we are to watch thoughtfully. We are to watch practically. Third, we are to watch perspectively. Perspectively. Now, David can see the crowd for who they are and for what they believe. He is perceptive, and he, with perspective, sees them. Look at verses 9 and 10. Notice that David now turns to the third person and says, There is no truth in their mouth. He is thought, he is practiced, and now notice how he's able to assess those who are around him. He looks at the world and says, There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self, their groans, is, that leads them only to destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David can rightly perceive the world as it is. And one of the great arts of Christians is that we're able to be in the world but not of it. Just as we learned this morning, if you were in AM discipleship with us at 9 AM, what does it mean to be in the world but not of it? You're able to be in the world but to have some perspective. One of the... um, Well, let me just give you an illustration. Any of you have to suffer through Jane Eyre in high school? Jane Eyre? Yeah, I see those hands. Yeah, yeah, I see the tears too, actually. Yeah, Jane Eyre. Do you know that Jane Eyre, there's a chapter in Jane Eyre that you've probably long forgotten, but there's a very, very powerful chapter in Jane Eyre, like chapter 27, where Jane falls in love with, with this man. His name is Mr. Rochester. Do you remember this part? She falls madly in love with him. And he falls madly in love with her. And there's only one problem. And you know what the problem is, if you've read the book, Mr. Rochester lets Jane know that he is married. But his wife is ill, and she is um, essentially an invalid and lives upstairs in his home, and he has to care for her day in and day out. And there's a part in Jane Eyre where, where Charlotte Bronte writes, Jane says, I was experiencing an ordeal. A hand of fiery iron grasped my vitals, and it was a terrible moment full of struggle, blackness, and burning. Not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved. And him who thus loved me, I absolutely worshiped, and I must renounce love and idol. One drear word comprised my intolerant duty depart. Jane, you must understand, Rochester says, that I want you. Just this promise. Be mine and I will be yours. Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours, Jane says. And there was a long pregnant silence. Jane, he commenced with a gentleness that broke down her grief and turned her stone cold with ominous terror. 
For this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go away into the world and to let me go another? I do, said Jane. Jane, bending toward and embracing her, do you mean it now? I do. And now, softly kissing her forehead and cheek, I do. Oh, Jane, this is bitter. This, this is wicked. It would not be wicked to love me. It would to obey you. And wild-eyed, Mr. Rochester said, one instant, Jane, give me one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be torn away without you, Jane. Can you hear it? Beckoning. What shall I do, Jane? Where am I going to turn for a companion and for some hope? Well, do as I do, Jane says. Trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet again there. Then you will not yield. No, I will not. Then you will condemn me to live wretched and you will, I will die accursed, his voice rose. I advise you to live sinless and I wish you to die peacefully. Then you snatch love and innocence from me, Jane. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Mr. Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp of it for myself. We are born to groan, to strive to endure together, you as well as I. You will forget me before I forget you. This is true, Charlotte Bronte writes. And yet while he spoke, Jane says, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with a crime. What crime is there to embrace him? I have no family. Who in the world would care for me? Who would be injured by what I do? But Jane says, as I have always believed, Mr. Rochester, and I believe now, it is because I am now insane with love, but when I am not mad and I am in my right mind, I know that preconceived opinions and foregone determinations of the moment, though they be all I have, I stand by the principle and here I plant my foot. And she turns away from love. And how many men who struggle with sexual addiction find themselves in Jane's shoes resisting it? How many women tempted to enjoy something beyond the bounds of God's desire find their innermost conscience turning? And what the Psalms provide you in Psalm chapter 5 is they provide you some perspective. You're able to look and you're able to say, Lord, help me to see where the truth is. That there's no truth in their mouth. Help me to walk in the way that is straight because though I am insane with love or lust, I want to walk according to your principles because your name and your renown are the desire of my soul. And they rescue me from even the moments of the greatest insanity. We as Christians are to watch thoughtfully. We are to watch practically. We are to watch perceptively and with awareness. And lastly, we're to watch joyfully. Look at 11 and 12 quickly. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. There is a joy that's deeper than feelings. There is a deep magic. C.S. Lewis writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a joy that is far deeper than the experiences you have. And that is the joy that we are able, even in the midst of our groaning, to sing, to delight, to joy. What was it after they had the final supper in the upper room, the last supper? What was it that they did just before they went down to the Mount of Olives? Do you remember what it says? 
Matthew 26, Mark 14, it says they sang a hymn in the presence of Christ. They sang a hymn. And when they had sung a hymn, they came down to the Mount of Olives. And it was as though Jesus is saying, hey, my body and my blood I have given for you. Sing. Because I cover you with a righteousness that is not your own. And I give you a joy that is deeper than your feelings. And I invite you to watch, O disciples, and pray, he says to them in the garden, doesn't he? Watch and pray. Watch thoughtfully, watch practically, watch perceptively, and watch joyfully because I cover you with my righteousness. And I'm going to demonstrate it on the cross. And we see that Jesus' arms are outstretched, and he did indeed demonstrate it. And it is not surprising that in the New Testament, the book that is most quoted more than any other Old Testament book is the Psalter, the Psalms. Because while we as believers need to be those who are moralistic and just repress our feelings, nor do we need to let our feelings tell us who we are. We need to take the gospel and we need to funnel them into prayer, thoughtfully, practically, perceptively, joyfully, looking to the one who became a shield for us. Notice the last line. For you, bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. When you're in battle, you hide behind the shield. The shield is not hung up because the battle isn't over. But you are, in the midst of your groaning believers, you are protected by the shield of the Lord Jesus' righteousness itself. And that is good news indeed. Amen. Let's pray together.